When Jenny and I were first married, uh, we needed a new dentist. And so in church, there was a Christian dentist, Dr. Marcus. And we were like, back then you found people by using this thing called the yellow pages. This was a bound volume that had paper, made of paper, and you would flip through and you would let your fingers do the walking. And his ad in the yellow pages had a fish. Ooh. It did. He was a leader in the church. He showed up with his wife and his two kids, a boy and a girl. Every Sunday, they were all dressed flawlessly. And he had this black four-door Mercedes. And I remember thinking, the first time I saw that, I was like, that has got to be the longest Mercedes I've ever seen in my life. Is that a limousine? What is that? You know, but I didn't say that out loud because you can't say that in church, at least back then. So, so but... Dr. Marcus was like the picture-perfect Christian in the picture-perfect Christian family. But then Jenny and I started helping and volunteering in Youthland. And his daughter and son were middle schoolers there. And the stories they told about the Dr. Marcus from home were like different than the Dr. Marcus we saw on Sundays. Apparently, the Dr. Marcus at home was, you know, to the point where once he pushed his wife up against the wall really hard and scared the daughter. I know. And so the funny thing is, a few years later, when it, turned, when it, when it came out that he had had an affair and they were getting divorced and everybody in church was like, oh, what? Dr. Marcus? Jenny and I were like, man, that took a long time. <laughs> you know, okay? Dr. Marcus apparently was an expert at faking it. <laughs> okay? Even before I met Jenny, when I was a young man in the 1980s, I was a Baptist. And the way we did church back then in my young days as a young man, being a Baptist, we dressed up for God on Sundays. Not like now. We dressed up for God. I had, you had to wear a suit and a tie, no matter how hot, no matter how cold, no matter how snowy. You would bring your best leather-bound Bible, and you would bring your Bible to church, and you would come every week. And, and everyone on a Sunday morning in, in, in Baptist days back then, everyone was doing great, wonderful, fantastic. It was the weirdest thing. I mean, every Sunday it was full of people achieving nirvana even though that's like a different religion. And so the funny thing is, it was all veneer, right? It was all veneer because underneath the surface, there were people who were disappointed, people who were hurting, people who were <gasps> sinning, people who were doubting, people who were having affairs, people who were on the verge of bankruptcy, and they felt like they had to put on a mask and pretend that everything was okay in order to be accepted and acceptable in church. Faking it has been around a long time, and it's still quite popular. Case in point, as I lay dying. If you'll put up my picture of my rock star now, as I lay dying, this is the big point. 
you look at this guy and you just think, that's Jesus. <laughs> so this fellow here is part of the Christian metal band, As I Lay Dying. As it turns out, he and his buddies apparently were faking Christianity the whole time just so that they could sell more albums. The reason that he got outed and they were kind of discovered to be atheists, which is, you know, they actually don't believe there is a God, the members of the band, is that he uh, inadvertently offered an undercover police officer $1,000 to knock off his wife. Apparently, Christians aren't supposed to hire assassins to kill their spouses. Who knew? Where's that in the Bible? So, in, in light of that, you know, it kind of all hit the fan, and all of a sudden, they were like, what? Some of you are like, really? That's in <laughs> okay. so, so, I love the way the Washington Post article, this is, this is the Washington Post article on this. As a general rule of thumb, it's better to be a Christian when performing Christian music. We also recommend that you don't try to kill your wife. <laughs> they may not be Christian at the Washington Post, but they understand Christianity. <laughs> this is a quote from, the member, from one of the members of the band. You know, we talked about whether we should keep taking money from the Christian market. Notice it's not even church. It's not even, you know, it's just the Christian market, okay? As I lay dying, apparently it was prophetic. Okay, so there's a movie, there's a movie coming out later this year. I'm actually going to go see it. It's called Believe Me. And the storyline of the movie is this uh, college student is short on tuition, and he's, and they're not going to give him any more loans, and he's got to come up with X number of dollars. It's his senior year. He's got to finish. He wants this degree, and he's on campus one day going, how am I going to pull this off? And InterVarsity Christian Fellowship is out there raising money to help free women that are caught in sex trafficking. And he gets an idea. He's like, look at all the money they're raising, those Christians. Boop, light bulb. And so he goes on a speaking thing around campus, and he gets discovered by someone with the national ministry and says, young man, we need to put, give you a national platform. And the storyline of the movie is, how long can he be a shyster, you know, before it bothers his conscience? And that's the movie, believe me, it's coming out later this year. I know, it should be interesting. Believe it or not, the movie is actually written and produced by believers. And their hope is that Christians watching the movie will get a little uncomfortable looking at themselves from the other side of the mirror, however that looks. But can we just be honest? Faking it should have no place in the church of Jesus Christ. And so today, I want to highlight a value. I've already let it out of the bag. Don't fake it. Say that with me. Don't fake it. In seemingly small ways, this happens all the time. I had a friend whose mother could afford to hire... Sorry, adjusting my microphone. I had a friend whose mother could afford to hire a housekeeper. And this lady came every Friday. Guess what this mom made her family do every Thursday night? <laughs> we need to clean. The housekeeper's coming tomorrow. That's like the people who take their dishes and wash them in soap and water and then put them in the dishwasher. It defeats the whole purpose of the dishwasher. 
It's a dishwasher. The housekeeper is coming to keep your house. <laughs> okay? But again, the things we do to keep appearances, it's crazy. And these behaviors, these behaviors are not limited to us Americans. It's all over the world. It's in Islamic countries. They cheat during Ramadan. They eat when they're not supposed to, but they fake it. <laughs> they fake it. Ask our friends that we know that live over there. But they fake it. People fake it. Okay, so it's, it's not limited to Christianity. It's not limited to America. In fact, it goes all the way back to Jesus' day. And so if you brought a Bible, we're going to be in two passages today. You get like two passages for the price of one. The first is Matthew chapter 23. Matthew's the first gospel in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 23. And I didn't mark my Bible because I was going to bring my waterproof Bible, but then I was like, okay. So Matthew chapter 23. Here we go. All right, Jesus is talking in this passage because it clearly says that. <laughs> chapter 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So, practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. So, let me, let me unpack some of the things here. The teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. They were scrupulous in taking the Torah and going, what does God say here? What does God want here? What does this mean for us today? And so if you actually stack up Jesus' teaching with all the various Jewish sects of the day, his teaching lines up most closely with the Pharisees, ironically. But how they lived out their faith couldn't be more different. This is the weirdest thing. And so basically what Jesus is saying is, look, I got no problem with their teaching. Do what they tell you. I almost wonder, though, if, so practice and obey whatever they tell you. I wonder if that's like irony or sarcasm. That's one of the things I plan to ask Jesus when I see him on the other side, which is, okay, I'm dying to know. Did you have a sarcastic tongue? <laughs> I mean, was this like, yeah, just do what they say? Okay, so he, he, he puts the teaching up there as, okay, this is legitimate teaching, but don't do what you see them doing. What they're doing is terrible. They put up all this teaching, but they don't help anyone. Their, their lived-outness of God's kingdom is a lived-outness of works. They actually think they've earned God's favor by all the good things that they've done. No, 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 no. God is a God of grace. Abraham didn't earn nothing. Moses didn't earn nothing. I know it's a double negative, but it's Kentucky. None of the people of the Old Testament earned their way into God's favor, into which he was like, whoa, look at him, whoa, big, you know. And even the ones at the top of the pinnacle, Job, etc., were still sinners. We're still sinners. So Jesus is kind of saying, hey, I really don't care for this whole faking it thing. <laughs> and the Pharisees were big fakers. They would make a big production of going to the temple 
and they didn't just like put their money in the joy box when no one was looking like is anyone looking okay slip this in you know and then walk away real quick no they made a big deal of hey y'all i'm gonna and it would go in and everybody would be like benjamin is just so generous you know and they would clap i know you think that's ridiculous i know but the pharisees loved the show they had these things called phylacteries they would wear i mean they would they followed the law to the point of ridiculousness I mean, there are stories from the first century of them running into the edges of doors and stuff because they can't see where they're going because they're trying to follow the law so unscrupulously, okay? So Jesus, the, the group, by the way, that Jesus deplored the most are the group most famous for hypocrisy, for saying one thing and doing another. And it riled Jesus to no end, okay? So let's fast forward a few years. Jesus has died risen gone back to heaven and we have the early days of the church and so if you flip over a few books a couple of books to acts acts chapter 5 here's this here's this text you almost never hear preached on in church <laughs> okay in fact i can't think of a time i've ever preached from acts 5 so when we're done if you've never read this you'll be like oh i see why um so acts chapter 5 acts chapter 5 let's just we'll go a few verses at a time but there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of that money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. So here's what was going on. In, 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 among the church, the wealthier members of the church were liquidating assets and giving that money to the church so that the people in the church family who were really struggling could have what they needed and it it wasn't that the rich people were selling everything they were just you know they were selling property it would be roughly analogous today to say a businessman or businesswoman getting a statement in the mail and saying i have two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of ford stock when did i buy that i mean we don't need this and then calling the church and saying look i'm just going to have my broker sign this over do you guys could you guys use $250,000 for anything? I'm just, you know, and usually a pastor's like, what? <laughs> huh? Is it, am I dreaming? Okay, so it happens. It happens. So what's going on here, and you have a man who did that, Barnabas, right in the passage before this, who did that. They were simply selling property and taking 100% of the proceeds and giving it to church. And so... Ananias and Sapphira sold some property, only they didn't give it all to the church. They only gave part of it, but they faked it like they were giving all of it. So let's see how the story unfolds. Verse 3, then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do such a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. Charles Spurgeon was giving a message once, and words came over him in the middle of this sermon. And he starts in the middle of his message decrying the man who's cheated his employer. You need to repent, sir, or you will be outed. You will be found out. And then he just goes on with his message. 
Well, at the end of the sermon, at the end of the service, this very pale-faced man comes up to him and, and begged, Dr. Spurgeon, please, I beg you, sir, I will give it all back. Just don't, don't go public. Well, you know, Spurgeon had no idea. His words came over him. So I want you to know this stuff happens. I, I've been in that seat before, and it even weirded me out. I had a couple come to me when I was a young pastor. The senior pastor was out of town, and they were having some marital problems, and they were desperate to talk to somebody. Did I say, did I mention that? Desperate. They came to, they were desperate. They asked three times, when is Pastor Steve coming back? Okay, we'll come in this afternoon. <laughs> okay? So they, they came and sat down, and it was just, you know, communication, typical marriage stuff. They weren't understanding each other, you know, and I was like, well, you know, I don't know what to tell you. You know, you've been married three times as long as I have, da-da-da-da. You know, here's, here's something. Good luck. What, you know, I'll pray for you. I, I, I don't know what to do. Well, that evening, I know, you're like, I'm not ever going to Max for, okay? So that evening, I just had this sense. I just had this sense that she was, she was a, a professor at UK, that she was cheating on her husband with one of her grad students. And so the next day on the phone, I, I mean, I really, this is not me. I'm not like Mr. Confrontation. You know, I'm not a high D. I'm not like in people's faces all the time. I'm the guy that's like, can we just hold hands and be friends, please? Okay, that's, that's me, okay? So while I'm on the phone with her, I just, you know, I, this, it's like it's coming out of my mouth, and I'm like, the name of the person, look, you are playing around with one of your grad students, and that's why this whole marriage thing isn't working, and you just need to get your acting gear and fess up to it and quit. You know, she denied it on the phone. Well, the next week he found out that she was, in fact, cheating with one of her grad students. Oh, and it got worse. He went after her with a gun. If it weren't for the intervention of the Lexington Police Department, she would have died that day, <laughs> okay? So I say that to say these things do happen. I've seen it in my own life, and I'm like, what was that? Okay, so, but in, clearly, okay, so clearly Ananias had lied. No one knew that he was lying. They, it's not like they could tell, and Somebody gets a word, and he's confronted. So let's pick it up in verses 5 and following. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Now do you see why this passage isn't used much in, in church, right? Okay. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. I mean, th think about it. If at a church meeting someone's confronted about lying and right there on the spot, boom, do you think you're probably going to lie for at least a week? <laughs> okay? They were terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. <laughs> Peter asked her, was, was this the price you and your husband received for the land? I think that's a test, don't you? Okay. Okay. And yes, she replied, yes, yes, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they're going to carry you out too. Instantly, 
you guys are wigging out on this. I'm telling you, I believe this really did happen, okay? So instantly she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. A couple of things. Thing number one, people instantly, judgment coming that swiftly from God is actually rare if you read the Bible cover to cover. Most of the times when God's judgment is going to come into play, it's like eons. I mean, even, even probably angels are like, really? You're going to take like another hundred years? Seriously? <laughs> okay, so judgment in the Bible is usually delayed. It's usually put off, and it's so that uh, people have time to repent. But this judgment is swift. They didn't have, they didn't have it, I mean, they didn't see it coming, did they? Boom, they're dead. So why so swift? Why is this here? Why is this in the book of Acts? A couple of things maybe to get your wheels turning. One, one of the consistent teachings of the New Testament is that we, the church, are actually the new temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul even fleshes this out further, and he says, it's not just when the church is gathered, it's not just the gathered church that houses the Spirit of God, it's individual believers. Their bodies are actually temples of God. And so, if you know anything about the temple of the Old Testament, God was real particular about who came in and whether or not they were prepared and ready and surrendered and everything else to be in his presence in that way and for him to be housed in a building like that. And so, some of that is playing out here in this passage. But the other thing that's playing out is... I think God really hates liars. And I think God has a thing about fakers. Ananias didn't have to sell the land, did he? Peter made that clear. He didn't have to sell it. And even when he decided to sell the property, he didn't have to give any of it. Right? I mean, it's his property. To sell it, do whatever you want. Give away 10%. Give away 15%. You don't have to give away 100%. No one's got a gun to your head. It's not a rule of the church. He was completely free. And yet, he faked it because they wanted to be respected the way Barnabas was respected without the actual actions behind it. And this is a serious thing. Uh, so lying in this passage, faking it in this passage is denounced. And I don't think that God really wants us to lie about who we are, about what we really think or how we really feel within the context of family. And I know, so I want to flesh this out. I do. So allow me to ask a couple of questions. The, the first question is simply this. Where and with whom do you feel that you need to don a mask to pose or pretend and to allow others to assume things about you so that you can be accepted? Where are those places and who are those people? And then is there anyone, anyone in your life that you can be honest and transparent with and from whom you can accept correction? Anyone. It's huge. I want to give some practical takeaways, right? Practical takeaway number one. You and I, we, you know what we need to do? We need to just acknowledge we're sinners. 
I hate to tell you this, I've got bad news. You're a sinner, but so am I. <laughs> In fact, one of the things that I do every Sunday to prepare for preaching is when I look in the mirror, I say to myself, Max Vanderpool, you are a sinner who needs a savior. And so does everybody else who walks through those doors today. That helps me from feeling, whoa, I've been walking with the Lord now for like 30-some years. I've read the Bible cover to cover like 18 times. Woo! Okay? Keeps me, keeps me humble. Because, right, all of us are sinners. You and I will never outgrow our need for a Savior. We will never mature enough. We will never read the Bible enough times, cover to cover. We will never pray enough. We will never give enough that all of a sudden God goes, you know, that whole all of sin stuff, that was true for everybody but you. It's not going to happen, okay? So step one is simply acknowledging I'm a sinner, so is everybody else, and that kind of puts us all on equal footing. It does. The second practical takeaway is be real, authentic, and transparent in ways that are appropriate for the context. In ways that are appropriate for the context. Okay, let me explain this. I might say on a Sunday morning in this context, you know, if somebody asks me, and I'm making this up, by the way, I'm angry with Jenny right now. Really? Yeah, we're just, we're having a disagreement, and I'm just out of sorts about it. Would you pray for me? Okay. Within the context of my small group and my friends, I might say, you know what? Jenny has promised four weeks in a row that she'd do the laundry, and she hasn't and I'm really hacked off, and I feel like she doesn't think that I'm a person that has any value, and I'm really resentful of her, and I need you to help, I need you to pray for me for my attitude, and, you know, see the difference? Give you another example. You might, in the context of a Sunday morning, say, hey, you know, somebody says, well, how are you? I'm having a really hard time at work right now. I've got, I've got an issue with a coworker. Okay, yep. If you could pray for my work situation, that would be awesome. Within the context of your small group, you might say, I need you guys to pray. My boss's boss has now touched my behind twice. And he is known for firing people, and I don't know what to do, and I'm angry, but I'm also scared to death about losing my job, and I don't know whether I should go to human resources. You get the picture, okay? So be real, be authentic, be transparent for the context. But I want to give all of you at Generations permission to do something on a Sunday morning. And that is, if somebody says, how are you, you don't have to say, I'm fine, I'm okay, everything's fantastic. You can say, I'm not doing well right now. Here's what you can add. But I'm here. I'm not doing well, but I'm here. And you know what? Being here counts for something. Okay? So I give you permission to do that. And for the rest of you, if somebody says that to you, don't feel like you have to know every detail. <laughs> if you don't have the relationship, if you haven't earned the trust to get all of the details, but allow people the freedom to have crummy days. Right? It happens. I'm not okay, but I'm here. Right? So that's the second practical takeaway. The third one is something that, that might be revolutionary for some of you. Okay? If you're a parent if you're a coach, if you lead anything, for the people under you, acknowledge your weaknesses. Acknowledge what you stink at. Um, you know, as parents, if one of you is really great at follow-through and one of you really stinks at follow-through, 
the one who stinks at follow through, verbalize to your kids when they're old enough. You know what? Dad, dad, because I love you, I will promise you the moon. But then it kind of leaves my mind, and I just, you know, I'm not really good about that. Mom's great about that. So between the two of us, you know, but you need to know, I stink at this. And what that does is when the times come where you do drop the ball as a parent, et cetera, et cetera, instead of the kids going, I hate you, they're like, oh, that's right. Dad stinks at follow through. I get it. You know, see what I'm saying? If you are at work and you're a department head or a coach, here's what I know about the people who work for you. They already know what you're weak at. They are, this is when you acknowledge this to them, they're not like, did you hear what Dan said? No, really? I don't think you're that. No. You know what they're going to do? Finally, they know. <laughs> and it's going to be a relief to them because they're going to be like, they know. It's whew, thank God they know. I'm trying, I, you know, there are a lot of things I am not good at as a pastor. As, I could go down a long list today, but among the leaders at Generations, I try very hard to go, this is what I'm bad at. This is what I stink at. So help me with these things, all right? I hope and I pray that you will find contexts. See, he agrees. I hope and pray that you will find contexts where you don't feel like you have to fake it all the time because it will be life-giving to you, life-giving to you. Fifteen years ago, I was foisted into a pastor's accountability group, and I went begrudgingly. I didn't want to go. And Stuart and Jonathan and David, there were several people in this group with me, okay? And within the first couple of months, we really, you know, the trust level was pretty high. We, we bonded as a group of guys. And the moment came, and it was group time, and one of them looked me in the eye, and they were like, hey, Max, you know what? You work too hard, and you're not taking time off, and you're not doing anything for you. And so this week, you need to schedule like four hours. And, you know, I was like, ah, you know, well, I can't. Because at the time, I was like, I think I had like three major ministry areas under me and like four staff members and it was just, it was an insane life. And I remember saying to them, well, I can't do that. Do you know that every day that week that one of them called me every day? So, you taking those four hours? By like the eighth day, I was like, just to get Stuart to shut up, I am gonna find, you know. And so, and he was like, you just need to go outside somewhere. And I did. And I was like, I love outdoors. I went through my whole 20s not knowing how much I loved hiking and kayaking. I figured this out late in life, and it's a life-giving thing for me. And so today, I'll take entire days. I call them my God days, planning days, where I go out and I'm outside, but it's a restorative thing to me, and I'm connected to God. And that came as a result of being in community in a context in which, guess what, the following week, I had to admit, you know what, you guys are right. I was working too hard. I took four hours, and it was awesome. And they were like, okay, so you're going to take a day now. <laughs> Baby steps, how about five hours, you know? <laughs> but I worked up to a day. So I say that to say to you, good things happen when you can simply be you. And that's what God wants. And you being you, here's the thing, within the context of the community and the, the Holy Spirit inside you, you're not going to stay, you're not going to stay st- stuck in things that God's going to continue to push and grow and mold and shape and you're going to become more and more like Jesus within these right contexts but 
let's just have a pact as a church family, can we? This is a place where it's not cool to fake it. Okay, so you can say to people at work, guess what, at my church, we don't fake it. They will want to know what you're talking about.